A good friend of mine, a guy steeped in Revolutionary War history, asked me a question. Who was the most famous resident of the town of Lexington? At first, it seemed simple. Lexington is so well-known, not just in New England, but throughout the nation. After all, it's where the Revolution began, the cradle of American liberty. On its town green is where the embattled farmers stood their ground as the world's most powerful army threatened them. It's where the first blood of the war for independence was shed. Together with nearby Concord, it's a household name. Every schoolchild is taught the basic story. The community boasts four museums and two visitor centers. Tourists from all over descend every April and throughout the summer. The town is so well known that seven U.S. naval ships have been named for it. But my friend asked me not about the town itself. He wanted to know who I thought was its most famous resident. A few candidates came to mind. Of course, there's Captain Parker, who said on that fateful April 19th, Don't fire unless fired upon, but if they mean to have a war, let it begin here. William Diamond was the young drummer who gathered the militia. He even has a school named for him. Both John Hancock and Samuel Adams were in town when the war broke out, but you can hardly call them residents, and of course, Paul Revere was just passing through. I was stumped. Then he said, you might not know too much about this person, but you certainly know his name. In fact, it's listed in Merriam-Webster's unabridged dictionary as an adjective. You've got to be pretty famous to be an adjective. With that hint, I had the answer. Lexington's most famous resident had nothing to do with the Revolution or even all those naval ships. Lexington's most famous resident was none other than Charles Ponzi. You might not know much about the man, but like me, you've almost certainly heard his name. His deeds became so infamous, and of course, it's also history. A Ponzi scheme, as defined in the dictionary, is an investment swindle in which some early investors are paid off with money put up by later ones in order to encourage more and bigger risks. Think the golden circle of the 1970s, or more recently, Bernie Madoff. In his case, despite being found guilty of defrauding far more people of much greater amounts, even he is still compared to the infamous Ponzi. So what is the story behind the adjective? Charles Ponzi was certainly not the first person to swindle others of their hard-earned cash. In fact, it's been said that he may have been inspired by William 520% Miller, a Brooklyn bookkeeper. You can probably guess where he got his nickname. Ponzi's scheme, though, was so widespread and it involved so much money, for that time anyway, that his particular type of fraudulent investment has become closely associated with him. Let's start with the man and his background, then we'll talk about what exactly is a Ponzi scheme and how it differs from other types of fraud. Charles Ponzi was born Carlo Ponzi in Lugo, Italy in 1882. His family had been well-to-do, but had fallen on hard times. 
He took a job at the post office, then headed to college, the University of Rome. According to a biographer, he could in with a crowd that considered college just a four-year vacation. He followed suit, graduating with no money in his pocket and no prospects. After graduation, his friends all migrated to the U.S., so Charles decided to follow suit. He was encouraged by his relatives to do so. They felt that maybe there he might restore his family's former grandeur. He managed to save some money to use for his new beginning. In late 1903, he arrived in Boston aboard the SS Vancouver. He said he only had a couple of dollars to his name. He had started the voyage with a comfortable nest egg, but by his own admission, gambled it all away on the trip. Later, he told the New York Times, I landed in this country with $2.50 in cash and a million dollars in hopes. Those hopes never left me. Charles was a very fast learner and a go-getter. He quickly picked up on the language and took on whatever work he could find. An early job was washing dishes in a restaurant, sleeping on the establishment's floor at night in order to save money. He worked up his, w- his way up to being a waiter, a positive start, but it didn't last long. He got himself fired for cheating customers and likely his employer. This early adventure foretold his future. He bounced around the Boston area for a while, but in 1907 he decided to try his luck in Canada. He moved to Montreal for a fresh start and was hired as a teller at Banco Zarossi. The bank was started by an Italian immigrant to help out newer immigrants arriving in Quebec. The bank was paying 6% interest on deposits, double the going rate. Of course, the bank appeared to flourish. In reality, though, the bank's president was using all the new deposits to pay the interest on the existing accounts. It was something that could not be sustained long. Eventually, Zarossi, the owner and president, flew the coop, heading to Mexico with most of the bank's assets. Ponzi, who had risen to bank manager, was left to clean up the mess, not only with the bank and their examiners, but with the family Zarossi left behind. Rather than serving as a life lesson in what not to do, Ponzi instead took it as an example of how to succeed. One day, he walked into a warehouse owned by one of his former bank customers, apparently looking for work. He found the building empty except for a checkbook sitting temptingly on a desk. He sat down and wrote a check to himself, $423.58, forging the signature of its owner. It didn't fool anyone. When he tried to cash it, he was confronted by the police. Instead of denying it, he held out his wrists for the handcuffs. He spent three years in prison. Thoroughly embarrassed, he wrote back to his family in Italy, stretching the truth a little. He informed them that he had found work at a prison just outside Montreal. Upon his release, he headed back to Boston, where he fell in love with Rose, the daughter of a North End fruit peddler. He didn't tell her of his background, but his family, who was now on to his scheming ways, did. Ponzi's own mother told her everything. It didn't matter, though. She married him anyway. He got work as a nurse at a mining camp. While there, a fellow nurse suffered severe burns. Ponzi became a skin donor for the woman. Over many operations, he donated several square inches. 
Unfortunately, his act of charity caused health problems for him, resulting in his losing his job. Back out looking for work, Charles Ponzi toyed with several ideas, but none took hold. He decided that maybe his greatest skill was not in running a business, but in coming up with business ideas for, for others. He set up shop at 27 School Street in Boston, right next to the old State House, to sell business ideas to Europe. At first, his small company was legitimate, although not necessarily thriving. That is, until he got a request from Spain on something called International Reply Coupons, or IRCs. An IRC is a coupon that can be exchanged for postage, one or more stamps. They used much like a self-addressed stamped envelope, but across international lines. The coupon is sent along with a letter. The receiver can then use the coupon to buy postage to send a reply. No deal with the Spanish firm resulted, but Ponzi discovered a potential for making money for himself. The rates for the IRCs were fixed by international treaty. After the First World War, the price of postage in Spain was greatly reduced. Theoretically, one could purchase the coupons in Spain with the devalued centavo and in the U.S. buy postage worth more than the price in Spain. Ponzi felt that if he could buy up many of these IRCs there, he could purchase postage here and realize a profit. The plan was completely legal. The only problem was the margins were low. In order to make any sort of reasonable profit, he needed a lot of capital to buy large numbers of these IRCs. He tried getting loans at several Boston banks to no avail. So in 1920, he set up a corporation to sell stock to raise the money, the Security Exchange Company. He started with friends and he promised 50% interest in 90 days. His initial 18 investors were, in fact, paid what was promised. When word got out, investors were coming to him. It seemed everyone wanted in on this great deal. He used the money from the newer investors to pay off the originals. As could be expected, there was sudden excitement in his company. Whether he actually intended to cheat his friends or he just began to believe in his own hype, he plowed forward. In fact, he upped the ante, promising future investors 50% profit in only 45 days. When asked the mechanics of the buying and selling, he answered that he couldn't reveal his secret. He did not want to invite competition. In a further show of hubris, he moved into larger and more posh offices just down the street. Charles Ponzi was the talk of the financial world. In just a few months, he had pulled in millions of dollars. By mid-year, his take was approaching a million dollars a day. Without thinking through or maybe willfully ignoring the basis for these riches, average people mortgaged their homes or drained their life savings in the hopes of creating vast wealth. They begged to be able to buy stock. Ponzi kept on growing, opening branches of his company up and down the East Coast. He tried to take over one of the Boston banks by depositing huge amounts of money into it in an attempt to force the institution to make him its president. Ponzi didn't care who invested. He took money from family and friends to a majority of the patrolmen in the Boston police force, State Street bankers in Boston, to investors from all over the country. His own priest was not off limits. He even took money from newsboys selling papers on the street corners. All were fair game. 
But it couldn't last forever. There were only so many IRCs to be bought. Profits weren't coming from them, for the most part. Old investors were simply paid by money from the new investors, a classic pyramid scheme. Even for the original 18 investors, it would have taken thousands of coupons to pay them their 50% profit. When the number of investors reached into the thousands, it would have taken millions upon millions of coupons to cover the promise. It didn't slow him down, though. He developed a high lifestyle, mostly to keep up his image. He bought his home on Slocum Road in high-priced Lexington, a mansion just steps from where the British regulars had marched into town so long ago. He bought the 7,000-square-foot, 16-room house directly from the builder for $39,000 on the condition that he invest in Ponzi's firm. He even had an angle on that deal. The house, really an estate, includes a butler's pantry and a separate one-bedroom guest house. His wife, Rose, then spent $50,000 decorating it. To go with it, he purchased the fanciest car available. He added a limousine and hired a chauffeur and strutted around with a gold-handled cane. The Ponzi's were living the high life. He wanted to show off how successful he was and in turn convince his potential investors that they, too, could be wealthy just like him. He began investing in other companies a pasta firm, a wine company, and others, hoping that he could earn enough from these ventures to pay off his investors. Cracks in his armor began to appear as he fended off lawsuits from all sides. For instance, a furniture company claimed that it wasn't paid when Ponzi outfitted his new offices. The post office explained to the public that it was not possible to make very much money, if any at all, doing what Ponzi claimed. A newspaper article ran an expose of his scheme, causing some investors to pull out. When Ponzi was able to pay them promptly, though, it ended, at least temporarily, the run on his company. As lines of investors who wanted their money back snaked down School Street, Ponzi ordered lunch for all those who waited. Slowly, the tide turned back to Ponzi. Most of the waiting investors changed their minds and stuck with him. He was helped out by a sympathetic editor at the Boston Post who wrote in support of the Securities Exchange Company. In fact, right next to the article on Ponzi's ability to pay 50% interest was a bank advertisement boasting a 5% return. Hardly a coincidence. For a while, anyway, Ponzi had a reprieve. The Post eventually got suspicious, though. It hired financial reporter Clarence Barron to write an extensive report on the company's operations. First, he noted... Ponzi himself was investing nothing in his own firm. Also, he pointed out just how many postal coupons would be needed to sustain the interest payments. He claimed that it would take tens of millions of the IRCs to be in circulation, and the actual number was closer to 25,000. Many began to doubt the validity of the operation, but to be fair, many investors stuck by Ponzi. The horse was out of the barn, though, Too many people began to look deeper into Charles Ponzi. Bank examiners spotted abnormalities in many of his accounts. Newspapers began looking into his past. A front-page story in the Post in August opened more eyes, reporting on his previous arrests. As some pulled away, he began defaulting on his promises. Then he was charged with mail fraud and larceny. His bail was set very high as he was considered a flight risk. 
His financial collapse took its toll. Six Massachusetts banks failed because of him. Most of his investors, except, of course, many of the early ones, were wiped out. In today's money, it cost them about $200 million. Whatever happened to Charles Ponzi? Obviously, anyone who could swindle $15 million, or today the equivalent of $200 million, from people of all walks of life had to have a certain level of charm. It's evident in the way many investors stuck with him even after he cleaned them out. The same is true with the court system. Although he was charged with 86 counts of mail fraud on November 1, 1920, he was allowed to plead guilty to only one charge in federal court. He received a five-year sentence, but got released after just three and a half. Immediately, though, he was rearrested and charged with 22 state crimes. He argued that it wasn't fair. He felt it was a case of double jeopardy. His case went all the way to the Supreme Court before being decided against him. In Massachusetts courts, he faced the first 10 counts. Since he was now broke, he served as his own attorney. He spoke in the same convincing manner in which he had convinced all of his investors, and he was acquitted of all charges. He then went to court for the remaining charges, and this time it ended in a hung jury. The third time around, though, he was found guilty and was sentenced to an additional nine years. All the while while in prison, he continued to get Christmas and birthday cards from some of his former investors. Many of them even wanted to continue to invest with him. When finally released from prison, he headed to Florida, where he established yet another corporation and another scam. This time, though, Rose didn't stick by him. She wanted to remain in Boston, so they divorced. In Florida, he sold tiny lots of what turned out to be swampland. It sounds cliche, but that's what he did. He was sentenced to an additional year in prison there. But while out on bail, he shaved his head, grew a mustache, and hopped a merchant steamer bound for Italy. He couldn't help but brag of his exploits to someone on board. When the ship made a stop in New Orleans, he was arrested again. For violating parole, he was sent back to Massachusetts to serve seven more years. During that time, investigators continued to research all that he had done, never fully working out everything. In 1934, he was released, but was immediately ordered to be deported. He requested that Governor Eli give him a full pardon, but to no avail. His charm had worn off. As he left the prison, he was greeted by an angry crowd. In Italy, he never worked an honest job, still trying various get-rich-quick schemes, but nothing ever worked out. He headed for South America for a new start, working as a translator in Rio. While there, though, his health failed him. After a series of debilitating medical issues, Charles Ponzi died in a charity hospital. He had $75 to his name, which was used for his burial. Toward the end of his life, he said to one of his last remaining friends, his barber, I gave him the best show that was ever staged since the landing of the Pilgrims. That was worth 15 million bucks to watch me put the thing over. Thanks for listening. Come back next time for more Tales and Tidbits of New England as we dig out another story. 
from Alan's Archives.